Well, Father, though we look forward so much to that day when we will indeed be before you and that great throne and in your presence with all of the nations, every voice and every tongue represented there that day. And we'll see Jesus and we'll rejoice like we've never rejoiced before. Father, we look forward to that and that's our hope But in the meantime, would you help us to be faithful, to stand in the midst of adversity, to stand against the schemes of the devil to destroy and tear down, to fight the good fight against the flesh that wars continually, to push out against the pressure of the world seeking to press us into its mold. Father, we know that we are more than conquerors through Christ through him who loved us. Father, help us to walk faithfully before you. And and these Sunday mornings as we open our Bibles, may they be used so to renew and strengthen us. We commit ourselves, Lord, to the hearing of your word and then to the follow-through of doing it as well. In Jesus' name we pray counting on you to work among us through your spirit and through your word. Amen. Well, let's have a little trivia quiz here to begin with. What do John Bunyan, do you know that name? John Bunyan, famous author and lived around the 1500s, 1600s and wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress, a Christian classic that is still in print. John Bunyan. Let's stand up next to John Bunyan. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Do you know Dietrich? A young pastor in Germany during World War II. Hung on the end of a rope. Capital punishment by Hitler's regime. Actually was part of a group of people who apparently were seeking to assassinate Hitler. Powerful young preacher, a prolific young author and theologian. His books are still in print today. How about the mighty Apostle Paul? His books are still in print today. (laughs) Have you heard of Pastor Randy Alcorn, a contemporary, active in ministry today? Some of you have enjoyed his book on heaven. It's a very encouraging book. Another little book that has had great impact of Randy Alcorn is The Treasure Principle. How about Chuck Colson, Charles Colson, and Prison Fellowship Ministries? And we could go on. What do these names have in common? Have you guessed? Each one of these men have been very influential in impacting the church and impacting the world in which they lived because they're godly men. And all of them, and perhaps Chuck Colson doesn't really belong on this list, but all of them have this common thread. They spent time in prison, in the dungeon. I reference Chuck Colson because of all of the names on the list, they all served for similar reasons as Joseph in our story in Genesis 39 and 40 this morning. They served prison time, 
and persecution and even gave their lives for just causes. They were innocent men. I put Chuck Colson on there because he applies today to our message because God used his time in the dungeon, the detour and dead end of a dungeon, to get a hold of his life and to transform his life so that he has had a tremendous impact over the course of what's uh, 40 40 years now, nearly 40 years. I invite you to turn in your Bibles once again to this wonderful story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, the grandson of Isaac, the great-grandson of Abraham. What a marvelous story it is. And last week we were in chapter 39 in its entirety And we talked about the theology of running. Did you ponder that? And are you building into your life a theology of running, particularly in our application last week, running from sexual temptation? Joseph, by no evil deed, breaking no law, finds himself, once again, very interrupted in his life. He's in a dungeon I've entitled our message today, Detours and Dead Ends. The dungeon where Joseph finds himself surely was a detour, a dead end. Surely this young man, having only made decisions to honor God in his life, finding himself with great injustice, sweeping him into the prison cell, had to believe that this was some kind of major interruption and detour in his life that he could do without. Not many of us will probably, anyway, be incarcerated as a result of our faith or for doing good. But do you know that God will often allow seasons in our lives that I want to call this morning detours and dead ends? It might not be the dungeon, a literal dungeon for most of us, although it could be in due time. But a detour, a dead end in our life, is a time frame in our lives where the circumstances can only be described as dark and negative and painful and undesirable. A detour and a dead end in our life is something that I have done nothing to trigger. I have done nothing to bring this time into my life. Or if I did do it, it was totally unintentional and without malice. But here I am in an interruption in my life. A detour for us this morning, a dead end for us this morning is something that in a season in my life in which I find myself where I am powerless at large basically powerless to do anything, to remove myself from it. All I can do is live through it, and often in the darkness, I wonder if I will even do that. A dungeon and a detour and a dead end today for us is a life-altering, painful, serious, not-part-of-my-life-plan occurrence. Now, Most of us in this room, as I've said, will probably not be in a literal dungeon, but I suspect that nearly 100% of us, if we live long enough, will find ourselves on a dead end, in a dungeon, 
on a major detour where we say, Lord, what in the world are you doing? And your life is caving in around you. For some, it may pertain to some kind of illness. For others, some kind of an accident. The removal instantaneously of your life of someone that is part of the framework and stability of your life. You are instantaneously a widow and you didn't expect that. You are a widower and you didn't expect it. For some, it is a divorce. It is a note found on a countertop and, the, and, and your life crashes in around you. For others, it might be a major personal loss, perhaps of a child, perhaps of another loved one, perhaps of a job and a framework of income and security that you were counting on. I don't know what it will be for you Some of you, I know your testimony, you've lived through them. You've stood and you've watched your house burn to the ground. And you thought, Lord, this is an interruption I did not need today. But you couldn't do a thing about it. You couldn't alter it. All you could do was live through it. And that's where we find Joseph today. The end of chapter 39, he has said no to the temptation of impurity and adultery and sexual immorality with Potiphar's wife, and kabam, he's in the dungeon, and he has to be thinking, Lord, what is going on? We know that Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers grabbed him, threw him in a dungeon, took his coat, tore it up, put goat's blood all over it, took it to his pop and told him a big lie about being ripped up by wild beasts. He was 17 years old at that time. In chapter 41, we're going to see, and you could look at verse 41, chapter 41, verse 46. You don't have to look there, but that's where it is. It will tell us that Joseph is 30 years old when he begins to serve Potiphar. When he finally comes out of the dungeon, and it happens very rapidly when it happens, they shave him, shower him, dress him, and put him before Pharaoh. And immediately he begins A whole new chapter in his life. He will be 30 years old when that happens. Bible students are guessing a little bit because we cannot prove from the text exactly where the timeline breaks off. But probably Joseph had lived about 10 years in Egypt from 17 to 27 on the day when he walked in his house and he had no idea his world would cave in that day. He was doing his duty. He was trying to avoid that woman It had been ongoing, and she finds him alone in the house, grabs him by the coat, and this 27-year-old man's whole world collapses. Let's read about it. It's chapter 39. We will begin in verse 19, and then let's go through the entire chapter 40, and I will comment briefly. I have no points of outline, as I've done sometimes with these chapter uh, breakdowns, but you'll see that there's a couple of key characters, and... um, Chapter 40 is also a chapter that lays a groundwork or a framework, background. It is important information so that we know why something else happens later on. And that's the way God works. The problem with the whole thing is Joseph knows nothing about it. Remember, we know the end of the story. Joseph is operating with limited revelation, limited information. Chapter 39, now verse 19. When his master heard the story... His wife told him, saying, he heard the story that his wife told, this is how your slave treated me, that is, tried to rape him, her. He burned with anger. Potiphar did. Joseph's master 
took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Potiphar was the captain of the guard. He was the head over the jail guards who guarded Pharaoh's prisoners, the king of Egypt. Joseph's master, verse 20, took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who, all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything and whatever he did. Verse 23 can be compared with verse 2. The beginning of the story when he entered Potiphar's house to begin with. We have really a, a, rep, a repeated occurrence. It's kind of a double track. You can actually parallel about five different things that happened here. He's in captivity or he's in slavery. And then one thing after another happens. The person who was above him begins to trust him. He takes on greater responsibility to the degree that just like Potiphar did, the warden of the prison who was accountable to Potiphar, maybe even through Potiphar's influence, supporting my theory and others that Potiphar really knew that Joseph wasn't guilty, but he had to posture, he had to show his wife that he was in control of his house and he couldn't undermine his marriage in front of everybody, so he throws Joseph in prison. But then he tells the warden, you watch out for that young man, he's a good guy. And as Joseph's equilibrium comes back to him, because he was beat up. In fact, let's take a minute and let's just interrupt our reading and let's go to Psalm 105. Can we do that? I want you to see this. Psalm 105. Turn to Psalm 105 and look at verse 16. The psalmist here is writing a song about the history of Israel and he's writing about the part of the history of Israel that tells the story of God preparing leadership in Egypt to rescue his people, which of course includes Joseph. And that's central to the story. And notice what he says in verse 16. We haven't got to this point yet in Genesis, but the psalmist in 105 verse 16 is writing about specific events that we will study in Genesis to come. He called down famine on the land, verse 16, and destroyed all their supplies of food. And he sent, verse 17, a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. Look at this. They bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. And the king sent and released him. The ruler of peoples set him free. There's a word picture, isn't it? Your feet and ankles bleeding from rough iron chains and shackles. A forged ring around your neck with a chain off of that. You think you had a hard time sleeping last night? Think about what Joseph went through in this dungeon. But then, little by little, his freedoms are returned. And we see in our story that very much as Potiphar did in his house, the prison warden puts Joseph in charge of many things. And God gives him success. It's not the point of our message today, but it is worth pondering today and worth thinking about on your own time that in prison with a ring around his neck, God calls Joseph a success. 
Well, that spits in the eye of the image of success today, isn't it? I saw on the headline the other day, Michael Jordan has a Mercedes-Benz that's going to be for sale for $430,000. That's success, my friend. You know what? That could be utter failure, right? Well, we could ponder this a little bit. I just think it's worth noting in your Bible that Joseph in the dungeon is called a success. Has more to do with what God's doing on the inside than what God is showing on the outside, doesn't it? Let's continue to read our story. Verse 23 again, The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. We don't know what they did wrong. We don't know exactly what happened. The Hebrew word for offended the king is literally sinned against. It is likely that they were identified at some level with some kind of subterfuge, some kind of plot or plan to undermine at the least the authority of Pharaoh or even identify with some level of an assassination plan. This is why these guys are so important. He's the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. No doubt, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, a very important man in a huge kingdom, had many cupbearers and many bakers. These fellows were the officials who were charged with making sure that anything that the king ate or drank would not contaminate him or make him sick or be be available or accessible to anybody who might be an enemy of the king. A more famous cupbearer than this even is Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. These guys are important because they had, they had complete access and entry to the king. They were close by. They attended his personal meals, parties, and anything in whims. And they often, because they were close, they were important political figures. It was a pretty high standing. They, in, in some sense, were advisors, no doubt, to the king. So as they're there, they're important. What do you think about this? See, they would have to drink everything first, and they would have to test all the food. They put their lives on the line. They were like the secret service a little bit. Somehow, we don't know how, they had offended the king. And evidently the verdict was still out and there was some, some investigating and investigations ongoing and so they're in prison and Joseph attends them. These two guys now become important in the story for their dreams. Notice what happens. After they had been in custody, middle of verse 4, for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had its own meaning, a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. They were downcast. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? 
It's interesting, the credit that he gives immediately to God, isn't it? Flip the page and let's look at 41.16 and just uh, make sure you know that Joseph has the right motive here. Joseph tells Pharaoh when he interprets his dream, which springs him from prison later on, two years from now, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. 41.16, back to, back to uh, 40. In verse 8, then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? You see, the interpretation of dreams was big business in Egypt of old. And they had guys that were all about interpreting dreams, and dreams were real big to the Egyptians. And they would go through a lot of rigmarole to explain the interpretations of dreams. It was part of the uh, religion of the day and part of the uh, somewhat cultic worship that they were involved in. Joseph right away says, interpretation of dreams belongs to God. Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer says to Joseph, he said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and squeezed them in Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. There's been much made by different uh, people that this whole dream, there's two dreams that happened by two different guys, but this dream is marked in sets of three. Notice what it says. In my dream, he says, there was a vine in front of me. There were three branches. Okay, there's the first set of three. And as soon as it A, budded, B, blossomed, and C, ripened, there's the second three. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, A. I took B, and I squeezed and put the cup in his hands. There's three, another set of three things that he did. You can get all tangled up in trying to figure out the symbolism. The Bible doesn't say there's any symbolism in them. Some people equate the, the vine with, with uh, Jesus and the three with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the, the wine that was squeezed from these grapes is the blood of Christ and this is the guy that gets to go free and the blood of Christ frees us. I think you have to be really careful of that kind of Bible interpretation. Okay? It's just not there. I have no idea what, what it means. I don't think it's a coincidence that both these guys dream on the same night and that Joseph's there. It's a little bit like, well, what do you know? Just happened to be these two guys and just happened to... It's all part of the sovereign design of God working in Joseph's life in the dungeon. So the chief cupbearer tells Joseph his dream. Verse 12, this is what it means. Joseph said to him immediately, the three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, and Joseph can't resist now. now. I noticed a couple of evangelical scholars criticize Joseph for this. The most notable is Warren Wearsby. It surprised me a little bit. Some of you appreciate Warren, as I do. And they capture verse 14 and state it as a lapse in his faith and trust in God that he would argue for himself. I have no problem whatsoever with Joseph speaking to this guy saying, hey, by the way, when you get up there in front of the king, remind him that good old Joseph's down here and I've been helping him out and that I'm a good guy and tell him to get out of here. I have nothing to do with this whole mess. I don't think it's wrong at all to pursue any of the options that we have to help ourselves get out of the dungeon. But I think that we need to note that God is in control of our tenure in the dungeon and up the detours. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. 
And when the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. Now, I suspect that the chief baker had a foreboding. The chief baker knew that his dream was bad news. And that's why he didn't speak up, but just per chance that he could get good results like the cupbearer did, he's going to go for it with Joseph. And so he says, on my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. By the way, hieroglyphic tablets have shown in the historical record from Egypt that they had 57 different recipes for bread, different, 57 different kinds of bread. You think Subway's got something going for it, huh? Look at that. Or I should say Panera with that box of bread out there. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Whoa. I wish I hadn't told you, my friend. Now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. It's a tradition that on Pharaoh's birthday, he would bring up prisoners. He would make decisions. It was a good day. It was a little bit uh, a toss of the die a little bit. You never knew how he was going to feel on his birthday. A little bit of a reflection, uh, for example, when these kings are partying and the decision-making that, that they would make. Remember later, there's a Herod in the New Testament who's going to bring John the Baptist's head up on a platter because of a decision made in a, in a time of, of fun and party and carrying on. And in those moments, they would make decisions. It was traditional on their birthday to do things like that. Now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. So evidently, there was a verdict coming out. He brought them up. They stand before him. They lift up their heads and look at him. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into the Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Let's stop right there. What a story, huh? What an amazing story. What do we know about Joseph for sure at this point? I've already speculated that he's maybe 27 years old. He's been in slavery or in prison or in a hole in the ground for all of about 10 years. Of course, we know that under Potiphar, he's been blessed. He's had success. And so there is a level of freedom, a parameter of, uh, of freedom and success that he's able to live somewhat of a normal life, even though he is owned by Potiphar. Just a major injustice. Do you know that? This guy didn't do anything wrong. The testimony of Scripture is that everything he touched turned to gold. That Potiphar never had the success in his household or out in his fields. Do you remember that? Like the season in which he had Joseph managing his household. And Potiphar's own wife comes to him turns on all the charm, tries to get him to go into her chamber, tries to lure him in with this sexual attraction. He turns that down when he had every opportunity to enter into it and no one would know the difference. He protects his boss's marriage. He lives with integrity before God. He lives with integrity before the people around him. And he's in a hole in the ground in a dungeon with an iron ring around his neck. Major injustice. Major injustice. 
And as far as anybody who really cares about him or loves him, they have no idea where he is. They think he's dead for 10 years. He's not going to get one letter, one phone call. He's going to get no representation whatsoever. He is alone in the ground, down in the basement. Physically, no doubt, beat up to some level. These conditions could not have been ideal. We have no idea whether he slept on a cot, whether he slept in a group room, whether he slept on a stone ledge. I don't know whether it was cold and damp there where they were. I doubt that it was anything desirable. We do know that when two years goes by, they're going to shave him, shower him, and put different clothes on him before they take him before Pharaoh. I'd like to pause in our message right now, and I'd like to point out that Joseph is a model for us in dealing with injustices. This is not really the point of my message today, but I thought that we needed to address it. Clearly, major injustice had gone on, and I think that of all the things that are difficult to deal with in our life, injustice cuts the deepest. I didn't do anything wrong, and I'm paying the price. Can I point out quickly that there is no anger with God, with Joseph. There is no personal bitterness or self-pity. There is no hatred towards people. And there is no drive for revenge or payback. Four things that Joseph models for us. And because of that, God can use him in the middle of this horrible injustice. So let's take a look at how to ruin a good detour. How to waste a good detour. Okay, so God, God has you on a detour. God has you in a dungeon. God has you on a dead end. And using Joseph as a model about injustice, here's how you're going to waste a detour. If you find yourself clipped off at the knees because of injustice, and you aren't careful, you can waste all the pain of that whole detour by, number one, by getting angry with God. You want to ruin a good detour? God is at work in you and you have no idea that years from now he's going to use you? Start getting really mad at God about the injustice. What do you think? God's not in control? You think God missed this one? You think God doesn't protect his child in love? Get really angry at God. Joseph did not get angry at God. Secondly, become bitter and hard-hearted and full of venom and poison. That's a good way to ruin your dungeon time. Just sit in your dungeon, sit as far back in the corner of your dungeon and become as bitter and hard-hearted and harsh and angry towards people. Spit on them. Try to punch people. You try to make everybody feel as miserable as you are. And guess what? God has a lid. You put a lid on God's ability to take your detour and use it for His glory. Third thing, avoid people. Become hard towards people and avoid them. Because people are the problem, don't you know? Every time I trust people, every time I do something, they make false accusations against me. They backbite, they stab me in the back. I don't trust anybody. Do not trust people and avoid them. Keep your back against the wall and never blink. Don't talk to anybody or you'll get burned. Fourthly, this is my favorite one because this is what I do. Live for revenge. Think about all the ways from now until Sunday that you can slit their throat. 
Think about all the ways that you can take an ice pick and poke their tires and do like my sixth grade teacher had done to her multiple times. They put sugar in her gas tank. Poor old Miss Petrowskis. You live for revenge. Live angry. Live angry at God. Live full of bitterness and venom. Hate people. Push them out of your life. And live for the day when you can come riding into town and shoot it up and pay them back. And I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. You're wasting your life. God has you in a season of detour. Remember, we defined that as something that's out of my control. I did nothing to bring it on myself. It is something that has rocked my world. I can do nothing to get out of it. I'm going to have to trust God in the middle of it. The last thing you want to do is waste that time by being angry with God, full of bitterness, full of hatred towards people, and vengeance and full of revenge. Guess what? You're just going to eat out your own guts like battery acid on your clothing. It's not helpful at all. So the question then is for our application time today, why and how does God use these detours? Why, why is it that this happens? And, and then how does God use these detours? The first reason is, and we can see this in the life of Joseph, but I want to look up some other verses, is God uses detours, dungeons, and dead ends, number one, to test us. Okay? So now listen to me. You're cruising along through life and everything's going great. You're not even in debt. You're even nice to your neighbor's cats. Okay? You stay after work and you don't even demand overtime pay. You're just doing everything right. Things are good. And you're even growing in Christ. You're putting Jesus first and everything's just right. It's good. And then all of a sudden... You're on this detour and you're saying to yourself, how in the world did I get here? I didn't do anything to deserve this and everything's falling down around me. It could very well be, and I think this is part of what was going on in Joseph's life, that God is testing you. You mean God's that mean? No, God isn't mean at all. We won't take time to turn there, but in Genesis 22.1, do you remember that it says, and God tested Abraham... That's when he asked him to take his son Isaac up on the mount, sacrifice him. You see, as God works in the lives of his children, in much the way that maybe a football coach will work his team to develop them, he pushes, he tests. For our good, let's look up James 1, verses 2 through 4. He tests us. He will test our faith. He tests to see if we're really... Sincere, if we're really genuine, James chapter 1, look at verses 2 and 3 and 4. James 1, 2 through 4. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What is that all about? Trials of many kinds, and I'm supposed to consider it joy? Yes, Christians are backwards. All right? Christians are weird. And the more obedient and the more committed to Scripture you are, the less you fit the template of the average guy around you. And you can indeed have a joy and a peace in the midst of suffering. doesn't mean you don't cry. It doesn't mean you don't wonder. It does mean you're not throwing things at the wall. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know 
that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Say, Lord, perseverance just isn't that important to me. But guess what? Perseverance is that important to him. When I was in high school, my dad wouldn't let me play football. I longed to play football. Instead, I marched and played my trumpet in a sissy uniform at halftime. (laughs) And so I ran on the cross-country team because my dad knew what football was. He didn't know what cross-country was, and I just did it, and I got away with it, and I hated it, every step of it. And for three years... I ran on the cross-country team. And we had a good cross-country team. I personally was no good, but our team was very good. We had state contention teams in the state of Michigan in 78, 79, and 80. Do you know what our coach would do? He would make us run until there was no spit left in our mouth. In Michigan, there's not too many hills, but just behind our high school, up by the junior high, there was a little hill and, and a few trees, and you could run down. You'd run a loop up, run down, run up, and he would run us in circles up that little hill until we couldn't stand up. Our coach would bring adversity into our lives to test us, but to develop our perseverance so that we could amount to something as a team. What good is a church that doesn't persevere? What good is a Christian who doesn't persevere? What good... What good are you if any little thing that comes along, you bail on Jesus? And so the Lord brings things into your life to test your faith. Develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. That's the value of perseverance. Without it, you will never mature. You will never get in shape as a Christian. Why is Joseph in the dungeon? Number one, God is testing him. Why are you on a detour? God is testing you, no doubt. Bringing you to maturity and conforming you to the image of Christ. Did he have to suffer? Yes, he did. And we join in in his sufferings. That's a spiritual reality that's difficult to understand. Second reason that God brings dungeons and detours and dead ends, not only is it to test us, but if you're in James, turn back left just two pages, probably maybe only one page, to Hebrews chapter 12, and notice that God brings detours into our lives to grow us. Closely related to this idea of the maturation process, but God uses it to grow us. Chapter 12, look at verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. Hebrews 12, 7. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are an illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. We might have had to let a few years go by, but finally we did. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Now look, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble knees. This isn't the kind of discipline like you've been gone, been bad. Whack! I'm going to spank your bottom because you're bad. 
This is the coach's discipline. If you do what I say and you live discipline and come under my discipline, I will make you into something you could never have been otherwise. And I will grow you to a whole new level. And the way it works in the reality of the spiritual world is that lying on the couch watching TV, eating ice cream does not make you stronger. You've got to have seasons of broccoli. And God disciplines you and he grows you. And he said, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. But there's a day coming down here where I will look back and I will see the necessity of it and I will love what God is doing now and what he's allowed me to be a part of. That's Joseph, isn't it? No idea of what's coming. Thirdly, and we'll wrap this up very quickly, is these detours come And the dead ends come to test us, to grow us, and then for God to use us. We won't go back there. Just listen. It's easy to remember and easy to understand. How important was it for Joseph to be in that dungeon when the cupbearer and the baker came through? We're going to find out two years from now that it was pretty important that God placed this guy in his life. I know that there's all kinds of ways you can imagine God can get his agenda accomplished without having to put me in a dungeon. But for some reason he does. I have often thought in the innermost parts of some of the highest level medical centers this country offers that I have met people that I never would have met had we not been smashed or my wife's kidneys removed. And the deepest most difficult days of our married lives other than burying our family members. And there, by divine appointment, we intersect and meet with people in the midst of a detour that I could live without. God connects the dots and connects me with people that I never otherwise would have ever encountered. And God uses us. Secondly, He uses us, as Second Corinthians chapter 1 says, to be the very hands of his comfort. Because we have suffered and found comfort with our Heavenly Father, we in turn can bring comfort to our brothers and sisters. How else can God use us? Most who lay around on the couch watching movies and eating ice cream are worthless. Those who have been through adversity and detours and dead ends and dungeons have not shaken their fist at God and have allowed Him to work become some of His most useful servants. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would You forgive us for our moaning and our groaning, our grumbling and our crying when it's motivated by self-pity. Father, would You give us a stamina that we need to allow you to work in us. Recognizing that you are sovereign over the roadways and that you will, in your time, at just the right place, turn us down a detour. And we're not going to be ready, but we can look to you. Thank you for Joseph's great model of integrity. 
Thank you for the great reminder that we can be sustained by the fact that you will never leave us or forsake us. And just like you were with Joseph, you will be with us. Father, would you help us to live at a level of surrender so that we don't kick at the goads and we let you take us where you want to take us and we receive the lessons and become the servants that you want us to be. Father, continue to make application of these things in the lives of our congregation and as we deal with things known and unknown, May Jesus Christ be praised. And may we live with nothing between us and our Lord so that his hand can guide us and his voice can be heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.